0: I hope you guys are doing well and you're enjoying this great day. I'm I'm so um, privileged to be able to share God's Word with you today. Um, If you didn't notice, we did have a few more younger faces out and around the church uh, this morning. Um, When I get the opportunity to preach in here in the main service, we... uh, we like to uh, give the students in our junior and high and high school uh, ministry here, our students' ministry is called 180, the opportunity to to jump into the servant opportunities within the church. And so um, one of our desires for them is to, to, to be trained up to to know that they are uh, uh, fully members of this body who are able to contribute, they are loved, and that they have a place to use their gifts within this church as well. So um, for those of you that are in 180 that are in the service, would you guys just stand up just real quick and let's just say thank you for those of you who are serving this morning. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. There's more of you. All right. Thank you. I hope you guys are enjoying the book of Galatians as much as I am. Um, I love the book of Galatians just personally. Um, When I am... Uh, feeling like I just need a good dose of the truth it's very common for me just to open up the book of Galatians and just start reading I just love the book of Galatians if I were to sum up uh, the book of Galatians in just one sentence I I would say this we have been set free in Christ that is the message of Galatians set free from the bondage of sin set free from the curse of the law we're no longer under the curse of the law because we're set free in Christ what a great message right And what a great study it's been to be able to talk about the book of Galatians and the fact that we are set free in Christ. This idea of what it means to be set free in Christ is that we no longer um, are obligated to follow in one path, but we now have a, a, a different choice. We have a choice in which path we were to follow. We were once obligated to follow our sinful desires of the flesh with no ability to choose otherwise. We were bound to a life of sin. The law pointed out our sin and convicted us of it. We are all guilty of sin and slaves to it. All of us. But now in Christ we are set free from the demands of the law. Set free from a life of gratifying the flesh. We are set free to go down another path. Set free to walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. We have been given that choice now and that freedom. And we have been set free not so that we can continue to sin... Not so that we can go on continuing to sin, but we have been set free from sin. From sin. We are set free from a life of bondage and slavery to sin and are now indebted to Christ. We're now indebted to Christ for paying that penalty for our sin. In the beginning of this letter in the book of Galatians, uh, Paul makes all these theological truths clear to us. Um, This foundation he sets that we are to understand our freedom in Christ and then Paul moves and which is, this is where we've been for the last few weeks into uh, from his theological truths into practical application so he's moved from the truth that we are set free in Christ to the ways in which a set free person should live out their freedom in Christ so we are set free in Christ but now how do we live out this freedom that Christ has given us how are we to live out this freedom and Galatians 5 1 sums it up well it says this For it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Paul is saying, since Jesus has set you free, live, act, respond accordingly as free men would. That's what he's saying. And so last week, Pastor Mark talked about um, as free people, what does it look like for us to be the church, having this new reality of being set free in Christ? What does it look like for us to be the church, to become the church that is set free. And so, Pastor Mark gave us a few marks of the church that it would look like if we are a set free people in the church. What did the church look like? And he said, the church is marked by restoration, by restoration. As Christ restores us, we should restore others. The church is marked by bearing one another's burdens. As Christ bore our burdens, we are to bear the burdens of others. The church is marked by serving others. As Christ came to serve us, we are to serve others. The church is marked not just by people who desire to restore, who desire to bear one another's burdens, who desire to serve others above themselves. The church is marked by people who act. Who act on that desire. People who restore. People who bear one another's burdens. People who act in service. People who don't just pray but also perform, as Mark said last week. The church should be a people who are marked by doing good things. Performing these types of good deeds within their church and community. And so today we hear Paul's final point of application in the book of Galatians. Before he closes out his letter. His point serves as a summary of everything he said so far in his application section. But it also serves as a challenge for us and an encouragement. He's going to push us and challenge us to think In a certain way, and then he's going to encourage us at the same time. The point that Paul is going to address for us this morning, that we're going to cover this morning, is this If it is true that through the work of Jesus you and I have been set free, then we as a set free people should be marked by good deeds. We should be known as people that constantly and consistently do good. We must sow the seeds of good deeds. We must be a people, a church, a community of believers, a family of faith that sow the seeds of good deeds. And so the question that we're gonna to ask today, and the title of the sermon, and the question we're gonna ask is this so what? So what? And that doesn't say sow what, that says sow what, okay? We're talking about sowing seeds. What type of seeds do we need to be sowing? What type of seeds do we need to be sowing, and where do we sow them? That are the questions we're gonna to ask today. So here it is. To reap a harvest that is pleasing to the Lord. If you want to reap a harvest that is pleasing to the Lord, it depends on what you sow and where you sow them. What seeds are you going to sow and where are you going to sow them if you want to reap a harvest that is pleasing to the Lord. So let's turn to our passage in Galatians 6, starting in verse 6. Let's see what Paul has to say for us today. Galatians 6, starting in verse 6, says this. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this beautiful day that you've gathered us together. And Lord, we ask that as we dive into this passage, Lord, that we would understand what seeds we are supposed to sow to reap a harvest that is good and pleasing to you. Lord, help us to be encouraged this morning, to be challenged and to apply these truths to our lives so that our fruit can be a pleasing thing to you. Uh, we ask for your presence this morning, your provision for us this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure all of you guys have heard this, uh, the common uh, definition for insanity. You've heard this and say, um, what is insanity? It's doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Right? You guys have all heard that? And this, this point is, is fairly clear. Humans are driven to look for results we strive for the end outcome of a particular thing we desire to see the finished product but when looking to the end result, when looking to the finished product, we oftentimes fail to notice that the starting place in which we start will never get us to the end will never get us to the end where we start and what we put in will never get us to the end and what we want out of it so even though we're driven for results, we fail to look at where we start how it starts. I say it this way we regularly plant Brussels Brussels seeds wow Brussels sprout seeds and expect to reap a harvest of juicy apples. And looking for that outcome we often start at the wrong place. And this is Paul's entire point of what he's getting at today. In verse seven, the latter half of verse seven, he says the phrase that we're all familiar with for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. We've all heard that before. It's a common sense saying, and it was commonplace to to these people and to us. For whatever a man sows, this is what he will reap. It's a simple logical point. The fruit that comes from a tree started from a seed of that same variety. There's no other way. You harvest what you plant. You get out what you put in. You reap what you sow. That's the idea. So let's begin to answer this question. To reap a harvest that is good and pleasing to the Lord, what seeds must we sow? So our first "so what question, answer here is the seed of God's word. The first thing that must be sown is the seed of God's word. That is the most important thing. Take a look at verse 6. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Wait a minute, let me read that again. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Okay. we got an elephant in the room. The elephant's me. I've never been called an elephant before, but that's what it is. This verse is very clearly talking about giving financial resources, physical resources, to those who teach the word of God. I would argue that this verse is very specifically addressing those who are pastors and teachers within the the context of a local church so here I am today as a pastor up here in front of you all teaching the word of God and the passage that I'm supposed to teach you is that um, those who are being taught the word are to share all things with the one who teaches can you appreciate the predicament that I'm in okay I didn't pick this text (laughs) I thought long and hard about how to address this um, being the position that I am in I thought about skipping it, (laughs) just for a second thought about just making a joke, just joking it off. I can I can make apologies or excuses to explain how this is not self-serving. I can minimize the thrust of this passage because it might get a little awkward for me and maybe for you. And so I have a choice to make and I have made my choice. I'm not going to apologize for God's word here. Um, I'm not going to shrink away or minimize this if it gets awkward. I'm not going to joke it off and make excuses for it. I'm just going to teach it. Is that okay with you guys? I'm just going to teach this passage and teach this principle and let you guys figure out what to do with it. All right? I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm not telling you to pay us more or do whatever. I'm just going to teach this principle and figure out what you guys want to do. What Paul is saying here is clear in this passage. In verse 6. There are certain key people within the church of Galatia who have been tasked to faithfully proclaim the word of God. Their job is to labor over the word to study it, to dwell in it. And they are called with a unique calling from God to teach the Word. These pastors are to disseminate the Word, to scatter the seeds of the Word into the church, to train up the church in righteousness, and to equip the church to go out and do the work of ministry through the preaching and teaching of the Word. These pastors have given their life to teach the Word for the sake of others. For the sake of the spiritual benefit of others. They live in the word and should therefore make their living from the word. That's what this passage is saying. These pastors who teach the word, who live in the word, who dwell in the word, should make their living from the word. word. What's interesting about this is Paul, who is saying this, did not make his living from teaching the word. As many of you know, Paul used his uh, leatherworking skills to be a tent maker. And so as he traveled around and planted churches and spoke in churches, he did not receive money or ask for money or solicit money from any of the churches he spoke to. There's only one time that he actually received a gift, and that's from the church of Philippi. And it was an unsolicited offer. They just gave it to him. So Paul, who never asked for support and refused to take support, is saying here that those who are taught should financially support their teachers. It's actually even stronger what he's saying. I like the way the NRSV version puts it says those who are taught the word must must share all good things with their teachers. He's saying this is a command that is inexcusable, obligatory. So while Paul himself did not receive regular financial support from his churches that he planted, he persistently encouraged, persistently encouraged churches that he founded to provide material support for the pastors and teachers in their midst. He constantly did this. We'll look at a few. First Corinthians nine will be up on the screen. It says this. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the ploughman ought to plough in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops if We sowed spiritual things in you. Is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul is saying the same idea here, repeating it again in this verse. The phrase, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing, is easy enough to understand. Think of it this way. While your ox is laboring in its work to plow and till your fields so that you can reap the harvest, a bountiful harvest from that ground, Don't muzzle him so that he is unable to eat and gain the strength he needs to continue in his work. Don't muzzle him. What Paul is saying is that your pastors and your teachers in your church labor for your sake. Do not take away their ability to do that work by placing the additional burden and the additional muzzle on him that he is also to figure out how he's going to eat. Too many churches are led by pastors who struggle to faithfully give the word because they're muzzled in their work. Instead of being able to focus, to focus on their task of preaching, they're concerned with how they're going to pay the bills, how they're going to provide for their families. And so their work is more strenuous than it ought to be. Many churches actually choose to pay pastors poorly in order to keep them humble and to set an example for the church of how one should live by faith what a shame that is for what they don't understand and what they're doing is that by muzzling their pastor they're actually sabotaging and diminishing the harvest that they could be reaping in their own lives if a pastor was free to sow the seeds of the word of God into the church Paul gives us more 1st Timothy 5 says this the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor Especially those who work hard, who labor at preaching and teaching. The word honor here is not just what we think about the word honor. This is actually a financial term. It's a financial term. What Paul is saying here to Timothy is that those who do well, who labor, who live in and faithfully proclaim the word of God to the church are worthy of getting paid double, if possible. That's where their worth lies. The biblical principle is this. The minister should be set free from secular wage earning in order to devote himself fully to the study and ministry of God's word and to care for the flock committed to his charge. That's the principle that Paul is laying out. Listen to how Luther put it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, It is impossible for one man both to labor day and night to get a living and at the same time give himself to the study of the sacred learning that is that the preaching office requires. It is impossible. So Paul gives us the same principle in Galatians as he does in first, first Corinthians. If we sow spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? The principle is this. Those who give spiritual things should receive material things in return. For our context today, those who sow spiritual seeds so that you can reap spiritual rewards should receive back from you material rewards, material fruit. And if it's not enough just for Paul to say it, Jesus, in sending out his own disciples, when he sent out his disciples, said to them that, in, in Luke 10 that the laborer is worth his wages. And just to make it explicitly clear, we got one more in 1 Corinthians 9. It will be up on the screen that says this. So the Lord, this is Jesus, so the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to make their living from the gospel. I don't know if it can be any more clear than that. Those whose work it is to proclaim the gospel should make their living from the gospel. So how does this fit into our thrust of what I'm saying today? For one, it sets an example for us. It sets an example of reaping and sowing. The framework of what Paul is talking about is this idea of reaping and sowing. And he's saying this is an example of what reaping and sowing should look like. He's laying this example for us. Those who who sow spiritual things should reap some material things back in return. It's also a challenge that those of us who sit and listen to the word being taught should perceive it as something worthy of double honor. It's an intangible thing that we do. Scattering the seeds of God's word for your spiritual benefit. Because of that, you should respond with returning with material benefit for those who teach That's what's being said. So the first seed, the first so what, is the seed of God's word. The seed of God's word is to be scattered. Who scatters that word? The teachers do in this context. But it also is something that you can cultivate in yourself. The seed of God's word is something that you can do on your own too. It's not just from the teachers. It's your daily Bible study. It's implanting the seed of God's word in your own life through your Bible studies that you're doing at home, through your home groups that you're going to. There's different ways to do it. The place in which this seed is sown, where this seed is sown, is in the minds and hearts of the church. The minds and hearts of the congregation. The first seed is arguably the most important seed. This is why we have various passages in the Bible that talk about how we're not to forsake the assembling together. Because it's in the assembling together that the seed of God's word is scattered amongst us. We're not to forsake together coming to Bible studies and do things like that because that's where the seeds get planted of God's Word. That's why as a church we encourage regular attendance in our church so that you can hear the Word so that seeds can be scattered in your own hearts. This is why we have daily Bible reading plans so that you can do it on your own as well. Because God's Word never returns void, this is the most important seed to scatter. You can't scatter the seed of God's Word and not reap a return so to restate this teachers sow the word so that you may reap the spiritual reward and since the spiritual benefit you receive is intangible the teacher should receive back from you a material benefit that is tangible now there's more seeds to sow than just this this is the first one but there's more so let's ask the question again if we want to reap a harvest that is pleasing to the Lord sow what? sow what? what should we sow? Look back at Galatians, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is the second time in Galatians, in just a few verses, that that Paul has told the Galatians not to be deceived. Not to be deceived. And it makes sense that the Galatians would need to be told, don't be deceived. We're already told in the whole point of this letter is that Judaizers have come into the church and are preaching a false gospel, and the church of Galatians is being deceived to forsake the gospel that Paul preached to them for this false gospel. They're being deceived. And just last week, Paul warned the Galatians not to be deceived in thinking that they are something when in actuality they are nothing. Paul uses this term in multiple other places as well. Two times in particular in 1 Corinthians where he's talking about moral decay, immoral acts of the Christian that shouldn't be going on in the church of Corinthians who were also uh, susceptible to being deceived. He tells them, don't be deceived. These things are not a part of the kingdom of God if you engage in these immoral acts. But what's interesting in this passage is it's even a tad bit more intense. Paul here is pleading with the Galatians, do not be deceived, for God is not about to be mocked, he tells them. He says the Galatians, in their deception, are in danger of not just deceiving themselves, but of mocking God. They're taking it a step further. The word mocked literally means, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, turning your nose up in contempt. Having contempt for God. By their actions, the Galatians were turning up their face, turning up their noses in contempt for God. So Paul makes it clear, God cannot be mocked. God cannot be fooled. You can't outwit God. Why does he say this? The Galatians falsely believed. They were deceived. That they could sow seeds to the flesh and reap benefits from God. That they could live worldly sinful lives and yet share in the blessings of God. And Paul is saying a resounding no. No. God can't be tricked in this way. He's telling that their actions have consequences. What you put in, you will get out. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap from the flesh. If you sow to the spirit, you're going to reap from the spirit. But in either case, your actions have consequences. We know this to be true in our lives. If you steal money from your employer, if you steal money from your employer, you are turning your nose up in contempt to them. But you can't expect to steal from your employer and not get fired if you get caught. Because your actions have consequences. You can't expect to commit adultery with your spouse and remain married. Actions have consequences. If you are doing that, you are turning up your face in contempt, mockery to your spouse. Unlike those worldly examples, God cannot and will not be mocked. In our worldly examples, you may or may not be caught... That's when the mocking happens, when you're doing it and you're not caught. In God's economy, every action has a consequence. He knows all and sees all, so there's nothing that you can do that's going to outwit Him. Don't be deceived, church. Don't be deceived in thinking that we are just the helpless victims of our nature, our temperament, and our environment. On the contrary, what we become, what we become, the end result largely depends on how we behave. How we behave. Our character is shaped by our conduct. Our character is shaped by our conduct. And so Paul's words ring true when he says, Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. God is not mocked in this situation. For whatever a man sows, this he will reap. So Paul moves from this truth about the impossibility of cheating God. The impossibility of cheating God and this universal law of reaping and sowing... to apply the truth... these truths to the Galatians situation specifically... very specifically... and he does so by using... what already he did in Galatians... in Galatians 5... about talking about the flesh and the spirit... the flesh and the spirit... and so we're brought to our second... sow what... what are we supposed to sow... look at verse 8... for the one who sows to his own flesh... will from the flesh... reap corruption... but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Notice here in the verse that we are told that we are two options, okay? Two options. We can either sow in the field of the flesh or the field of the spirit. There's two fields in which we could sow our seed. What's the seed? What's the seed that we're sowing? The seed that is being sown here is the seeds of our own thoughts and our own actions. Our own thoughts and our own actions. And we have two options. We can either sow the seed of our thoughts and actions to the field of the flesh or the field of the Spirit. So, in similar terms, this is in Galatians 5, the Christian duty is to walk in the Spirit. It's to sow in the Spirit. The Spirit is likened both to the path in which we walk and the field in which we sow. Listen, church, how can we expect to reap the fruits of the Spirit? If we do not sow in the field of the Spirit, how could we expect to reap the fruit of the Spirit if we are not sowing into the field of the Spirit? At the same time, we're warned not to sow into the field of the flesh because we will reap from the flesh. How can we expect to reap into the field of the flesh and not sow from the field of the flesh? So let's take a look at the two examples given. What does it mean to sow in the flesh? What does it mean to sow seed of our own thoughts and actions into the flesh? In Galatians, we've seen that this idea of flesh is our lower nature. It's with its passions and desires, which if left unchecked, work out, break out in the works of the flesh. In Galatians 5. This lower nature is in each of us, even after conversion. It's always battling against us. It's one of the fields that we can sow in. To sow to the flesh is to pander to it to caress, to cuddle it, to stroke it instead of crucifying it, to let it exist and nurse it instead of crucifying it. The seeds we sow are largely our thoughts and our deeds every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, to nurse a grievance, to entertain an impure thought, impure fantasy, to wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose negative influence we know we can't resist, every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Some Christians sow to the flesh every single day and wonder why they don't reap holiness. They wonder why they don't reap growth in Christ. Holiness, growth in Christ, sanctification, is a harvest. It's a harvest that you reap. The fruit of the Spirit must be reaped. Whether you reap it or not depends entirely on what you're sowing and where you're sowing it. What you're sowing and where you're sowing it. So if that's what it means to sow to the flesh, what does it mean to sow to the Spirit? To sow to the Spirit is the same thing as to set the mind. Remember the thoughts and the actions on the Spirit, as Romans 8 says. To walk by the Spirit. Our actions in Galatians 5. The thoughts and actions are what we're being sowed. So we're to seek to set our minds on the things above, not the things below that are on earth. That's what Colossians says. By the books we read, the company we keep, the hobbies we pursue, we can be sowing to the Spirit. Then we're to foster disciplined habits of action, of devotion in private and in public, in daily prayer, and in Bible reading, in worship with the Lord's people on the Lord's day like today. All of this is sowing to the Spirit. Sowing to the Spirit. And without the sowing to the Spirit, there can be no reaping of the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul distinguishes between the two fields. He says your thoughts and actions can either be sown into the field of the flesh or the field of the Spirit. He also distinguishes between the two harvests. If you sow to the field of the flesh, what's the harvest? If you sow to the field of the Spirit, what's the harvest? If we want to reap a harvest, sorry, the results are only logical. If we sow to the flesh, we'll reap from the flesh corruption. It's a process of moral decay. We shall go from bad to worse until finally we perish. On the other hand, if we sow to the Spirit, we shall reap from the Spirit eternal life. That is, a process of moral and spiritual growth will begin. Communion with God, fellowship with God, a relationship with God, which is eternal life, will develop now until in eternity it becomes fully realized. Therefore, we want to reap a harvest that is pleasing to God, a harvest of holiness. Their duty is twofold. First, we must avoid sowing to the flesh. And two, we must keep on sowing in the Spirit. We must ruthlessly eliminate, cut it out, the first. And we must concentrate all of our energies and efforts on sowing to the Spirit. It's another way of saying, in Galatians 5 it says this, that we must crucify the flesh and walk by the Spirit. There's no other way of growing in holiness. There's no other way of reaping a harvest that's pleasing to the Lord. So our first point was this. If you want to reap a harvest that's pleasing to the Lord, We must sow the seed of God's words in the minds and hearts of the congregation. The second is this. If we want to reap a harvest that is pleasing to God, then we must sow the seed of our own thoughts and our own actions in the field of the Spirit. Now, it feels like we've been a little bit rebuked by Paul here. He's saying, hey, you guys, don't be deceived. Don't mess this up. This is what you need to do. Stop sowing to the fields of the flesh, sow to the fields of the Spirit. And he knows that we need some encouragement. For as good as it sounds to walk in the path of the Spirit, to sow in the fields of the Spirit, to reap the fruit of the Spirit, and to gain the reward of eternal life and fellowship with God, it's much, much easier said than it is done. Much easier said than done. Paul knows firsthand that in sowing seeds to the Spirit, in doing these acts of good deeds, we can become weary. We can become weary. We can lose heart. We can quit and we can lose our opportunity to do more good. Look at verse 9 and 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Let's be brutally honest for a minute. Being actively involved in selfless, burden-bearing, Service-oriented ministry can be and often is tiring. Exacting work from us. If you think that it's easy, you're probably not far enough into the battlefield. In attempting to do good, we're we're actively being poured out for the sake of others because Christ was poured out for us. We're constantly giving because Christ gave to us. And just like Jesus who is opposed in his actions, we too are going to be opposed. We're opposed by the world. We're opposed by Satan and his demons. We're opposed by our own flesh that is creeping up constantly inside of us, telling us to go down the path of sin. The road to doing good, the road to planting seeds that are fruitful in the spirit can be a long, arduous, and taxing experience. We will be tempted. This is what Paul's saying. We will be tempted in doing good to become discouraged, to slack off, or even to give up. And so in verse 9, it says not to lose heart. Don't lose heart in doing good. I don't think the NASB could have picked a better word than lose heart for this Greek word that's being translated. To lose heart doesn't just mean that you simply um, lose energy or lose courage or confidence, it, it means that you stop believing that you can actually succeed. You stop believing that the seeds that you're putting out are actually going to reap a harvest. You stop believing that that's even true. The Christian life of service can often be perceived this way. We labor, we toil, we strive, we serve, we we. We serve our neighbors and our loved ones. We work, we work, we work. And the whole time we're working, we're opposed. And then after years, years of diligent effort, we look back and we see maybe a tiny little sprout. Maybe a a tiny little plant. Sometimes we look back and we don't see anything at all. Sometimes. Think of this from a work perspective. Imagine that in your job you, you worked relentlessly, tirelessly, every day, week in, week out. For years. At the end of the month, you open up your paycheck, and you see a grand total of a whopping 50 cents. How long until you're discouraged? How long until you lose heart? How long until you believe you cannot succeed anymore? How long until you give up? The Christian life of service can often be the same. We plant, we plant, we plant, we sow those seeds, looking for a harvest, and sometimes it takes a long time for that harvest to come. Now, this is not to say that we never see fruit. This is not to say that we go about our labor in the Lord begrudgingly or without joy. That goes without saying there's absolutely a sense of joy in serving the Lord. That's true. But what Paul is telling us here is that there can equally be a sense of discouragement. Discouragement. So Paul tells us, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. But Paul, when will we reap? When will we reap? I've been praying for my son or for my daughter for ten years that they would come to the Lord, and he still hasn't. I've been serving in children's ministry every Sunday for years, and I, I don't see any fruit yet. I've been serving the homeless every week, and I don't see anything in return. I've been meeting with this young man or young woman in my business, trying to encourage them, and for years we've been meeting, and they just don't get it yet. I've been giving to those who need financial support. I'm seeing nothing in return, no fruit coming out of that. I've been persistent in my loving on ministering to people in this church, in this community, in my work, in my school, in my family, in my home, and yet there are just weeds sprouting up. I see a little shoot come up of a plant, but before long, the weeds come up and choke it out. I'm scattering seeds constantly, but before they can even take root, the birds come and pluck them away. When will I reap When will I see the fruit of my labor? When will I eat of the harvest? When will I reap what I've sown? Paul says to this, In due time. Oh, how I wish he said tomorrow. We are a culture of instant gratification. We love instant gratification. When we work out, we want to work out one time, and we want to look the way we want to look at the end, instantaneously. We love instant gratification. Oh, how I wish he said tomorrow. Or even next week or next month. I could even be okay with next year. Okay, so when is the due time? When is it? When are we going to reap? He just says in due time. this really means is in God's timing. In God's timing is when we're going to reap. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not told when we're going to reap. We're not told. We are just told that we are going to reap. It may be tomorrow... It may be next week, it may be next year, it may be in 20 years, or it may be when the fullness of time has come and Christ returns for us and we'll receive our reward in heaven. We are not told when we will reap, just that we will reap. He only gives us the incentive. He tells us that in doing good, it's like sowing seed. If we persevere the sowing, then in due season, in due time, in God's time, we shall reap if we don't lose heart, if we don't give up. If the farmer tires of sowing seed and leaves half of his field unsown, he will only reap half a crop. It's the same with good deeds. If we want a harvest, if we want a good harvest that's pleasing to the Lord, we must finish the sowing and be patient like the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient over it, as James says. Be patient for that fruit to come. Okay, so... We don't know when we'll reap the harvest, but we at least know what the harvest is, right? At least we know what the harvest is going to be in this context. No, we don't. Paul doesn't tell us that either. He leaves us to guess. The, the, The things that we sow, the good deeds that we sow, may bring comfort or relief or assistance to people in need. It may lead a sinner to repentance. That's good fruit. It may help to arrest the moral deterioration of our society and Make it a better place to live in, it may increase men's respect for what is beautiful and, and pure and holy. It it will, for sure, bring a reward to you, the doer, in a heavenly sense, but we don't know what that is. We have no idea what that is. Paul tells us that whatever the reward is, and whenever it comes, we will reap the harvest that is good if we don't give up, if we don't lose heart, if we don't get weary. And so Paul brings us to our last point, concludes this whole thing. Our final so what? So what? What's the last thing that he's telling us to sow? This is an all-encompassing phrase, really for his whole application section that he's done. It says, We are to sow the seeds of good deeds. We are to sow the seeds of good deeds. Look at verse 10. So then, conclusion statement, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially those who are of the household of faith. We are called and commanded to sow seeds of good deeds, and where do we sow them? To all people, but especially to the household of faith, especially in the church, especially in this building, in this room, in this moment. To reap a harvest that is pleasing to the Lord, we must sow the seeds of good deeds, in the lives of those in our church and in the lives of those in our community. That's the field we need to sow them in the The saying goes, charity begins at home. If we cannot actively do good to those within the walls of this church, in this community, this, this community who share the same convictions, the same love for their Lord, the, the same interests in following after the Lord, then how are we supposed to be successful in sowing Good seeds and doing good deeds to those in our community. It needs to start here. It needs to start here. So it says, especially to those in the household of the faith. Our good deeds to one another should be so evident, so abounding that they overflow into the community. When should we sow these seeds of good deeds in the lives of hearts of the people in our community and church? It says this, while we have opportunity before we miss our opportunity. Our lives are short, people. We only have a limited amount of time to sow these good deeds into each other's lives, into the lives of the community. Don't miss your opportunity. As you have opportunity, at every opportunity, you should use it to plant the seeds of good deeds so that you can reap a good reward. It's pleasing to the Lord. Are we known in this church as people who are so abounding in good deeds to one another That when someone were to walk in this door for the very first time, they would leave and say, Wow, that church is overflowing with love for one another. They're overflowing with how they share all things with one another, come alongside one another, bear one another's burden, serve one another. Is that what we're known for? We should be. Does our community know us as the Rock Community Church, as people who are so abundant in good deeds in this church that it overflows into the community? That when they meet someone from our church and say, Oh, I know that church, they do good. Is that what we're known for? We should be. Let me recap all of this for you. Church, if we want to reap a harvest that is good and pleasing to the Lord, we must sow the seed of God's words into our hearts and minds. We must sow the seed of God's word into our hearts and minds providing for those pastors and teachers who faithfully scatter the seed. And when that seed is taken root, we must sow the seed of our own thoughts and deeds into the field of the Spirit. Into the field of the Spirit. And from the Spirit, we'll prov- He will provide a harvest of eternal life, fellowship with God, communion with God. And then we must sow the seeds of good deeds in lives of those in our church and our community without losing heart, without quitting, while we have the opportunity. Let us be individuals, let us be a people, let us be a church, let us be a community who are so captivated by the grace of God in Christ, so captivated by the way the Lord loves us and has served us, has done good for us, that we become marked as a people, as individuals, as a community, as a church, as faithful sowers. Sowers of His Word, sowers of our own thoughts and actions in the field of the Spirit, and sowers of the seeds of good deeds to the glory of God and for our ultimate reward. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask You this morning that You would... Help us to be faithful scatterers, faithful sowers of seeds that you have put before us. Help us to continually sow the seeds of God's word into our own lives, into our minds, and into our hearts so that that can outflow into other people's lives. Help us to sow the seeds of our own thoughts and actions in the right place. Not sowing to the flesh, but sowing to the Spirit so that we can reap from the fruit of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to be people who sow good deeds all things, in all things that we do, to those in this church, so that we'd be known as a church that loves one another, that does good deeds for one another, and I pray that that would overflow into our community, so that we'd be known as a church that because of what you have done for us, we now are known for sowing seeds of good deeds into the community. We thank you, Father, for your word. You ask that you would be with us encourage us, give us your spirit to act this out, to live this out, not just be people who desire, but people who act. All to the praise of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.